There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Sorry I'm late. I, I lost track of time in the yurt. No way. Whew. Jen, please. I really needed it, though. I was hurting for a yurt. That guy's here? You probably don't even remember who he is. Tell me they previously on him. No, I don't care. We're doing it again. Um, previously on this guy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding TV. I'm Dan Gavazdan, thrilled to be filling in for the one, the only David Chen, who couldn't be here today, but uh, you're going to get me in his place. I'm Siddhant Adlaka, and I'm not David Chen either. Wow, look at that. Uh, it, it's kind of uncanny. Well, today, everybody, <laughs> we're going to be talking about She-Hulk, Attorney at Law, Season 1, Episode 7, entitled The Retreat. And that seems to be where David is. No, no, he's working his butt off. Um, but maybe he could go take a little uh, break in the the, uh, the sauna hut. But uh, you can find more episodes of this podcast at podcast.decodingtv.com and find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash decodingtv and email us at decodingtv at gmail.com. But before Sidant Adlaka and I get into She-Hulk Attorney at Law Episode 7, and I want to be clear – I'm going to try to refer to you by your full name for this entire episode, Sidon Adlaka, because if I'm going to replace David Chen, I'm only going to do so by pronouncing full names. Uh, how does that sound? I, I really appreciate that, Dan Gavazdan. Well, perfect. Perfect. Well, yes, we are going to be talking about She-Hulk Attorney at Law Episode 7. But first, we're going to be talking about a run of She-Hulk comics from writer Dan Slott and artists Juan Babillo and Paul Pelletier. Uh, that's She-Hulk Volume 1, Numbers 1 through 6, from 2007, a good 15 years ago, that were collected in a trade called Single Green Female. Uh, there's a link in the show notes uh, where you can purchase this book. Of course, you can go online and buy this thing uh, not as a trade uh, as well. Um, but yeah, uh, let's get right into it, shall we? Dan Slot She-Hulk from 2007, Issues 1 through 6. Uh, why are we talking about this run, Sidon? You know, like I, I was keen to talk about it. What What do you think is so important for our listeners to know? Well, most importantly, it's it was my first She-Hulk comic. Really, that's mm -hmm. why we're talking about it. No, but yeah. I, I think it's the one that the show is probably most strongly based on. And I just want to clarify that, you know, while the trade paperback was um, collected in 2007, just, just for listeners looking for the uh, the issues, the first one of it was... Uh, published in 2004, and then there was another one by Dan Slott in 2005, and what we're doing is the, the earlier one, the 2004 one, just in case there's like some confusion out there, like you have two She-Hulk number ones like a year apart. Yeah, no, it's definitely confusing, um, and the run itself, if you want to read the whole thing, is about like 30-some issues long, um, but like, yeah, spread across two volumes, because of course they couldn't keep things simple in comics, um, They've clarified it a little bit nowadays with what they call legacy numbering, but um, <laughs> for, for the most part, uh, yeah, you have two number ones within the span of a year. Thanks for clarifying um, on that. And uh, 
uh, yeah, this is the first volume, as I said. Um, and, and not to be confused with the John Byrne run of She-Hulk, which was not actually called She-Hulk, you know, proper, which is what this is. Um, so anyway, uh, comics have got to be confusing. And hopefully you can just go to the show notes, click on a link if you want to read this thing and keep it really simple. Um, but you're right, Sadan. I, I, I think this run is largely the biggest inspiration for this show and like probably the reason this show exists, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. you know, there have been other r- writers who've done interesting things with She-Hulk and I'm sure we're going to talk about some of them as you guys did with the John Byrne run, which is a really interesting run for what it represented when it came out. But um, Dan Slott, I think kind of figured out this formula to some degree that the show is largely, you know, adapting from. Um, so yeah, I think it's great to talk about, but I also thought it would be interesting to talk about this as like a response to the John Byrne run that you guys uh, talked about, because in many ways, I think that this run of comics is almost a response to, to that run of comics um, for mm-hmm. all of its kind of um, winking at the audience and, um, you know, kind of like objectifying She-Hulk in a way that was both kind of cringy, but also trying to be edgy. Um, this run really kind of pushes back hard the opposite way. Um, mm-hmm. And so some of the kind of feminist overtones of the TV show, I think can largely be found in this run as flawed as it is in its own way. Um, did you pick up any of that reading issues one through six? Yeah, uh, I think what it does is it doesn't primarily present She-Hulk as a superhero. And by um, having its focus being mostly on the line between the personal and professional, it kind of gives it uh, the sort of like everyday, very relatable feel and rounds out elements to her character that um, I think the John Byrne run probably couldn't or didn't want to um it it you know it's more about like it's much more about like sex and dating like the show is than it than the john Byrne run was um and i think another thing that's also really interesting about it is the design and you know you're never going to find two artists or even two readers who agree on what you know uh, she hulk's design should be because you know by nature it's about you know transformation and body image issues and stuff um but you know you look at the the runs from like the 80s and 90s you have a she-hulk whose appearance is sort of you know modeled off like metal album covers and like you know comics and animation of the time where it's like you know very muscular and very toned and it was you know good for his time to have that kind of you know uh appearance for a female character just because that was you know pushing against the norms of the previous decades and then this presents um you know a she-hulk who you know, looks a lot different from that, who is much uh, curvier, for instance. And that's not a, a like an archetype that you see too much in comics even today. You know, a character who isn't either just like, like, like really, really like inhumanly slender or like super buff and muscular. This is like a third other thing, which makes her more, you know, I know she's like a sci-fi fantasy type of character, but it makes her more realistic in a lot of ways that I think a lot of people would be able to relate to more because she isn't, you know, like a chiseled Greek statue. She is, she, uh, you know, without the sound, without sounding too uncouth, she has, you know, a lot of flesh and fat on her. And, uh, there's no way to talk about, you know, bodies without sounding <laughs> like you're 
you know, being a little weird about it, but it's something I greatly appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you know, if you look, just look at the covers of these issues, you wouldn't get that idea. It's a different no. artist and the covers are heavily sexualized. I'm guessing to attract a, like a male audience, picking them up off, off the walls. But, um, you're right. The book itself in, in the interiors is quite different. And, you know, this series would have a bunch of different artists over the years, but, um, you know, it's primary artists to start things off. Juan, he, he really, uh, you know, narrows in on what you're describing. Um, and I like that you said that it's not really about a superhero and it, it's interesting because like the very first action we see in the comic is that she Hulk is partying in the Avengers mansion and they're just getting sick of her and they kick her out of the Avengers, right? So, like, she's mm -hmm. literally, like, kind of, like, degraded from superhero to citizen, um, mm -hmm. like, just straight out of the gate. So, you know, like, it's very clear about its intentions straight away. And, you know, that's where we really get to the introduction of GLK and H, which first appeared yeah. here. Um, it's an invention of the slot run, including characters like, that we know on the show, like Mallory Book and Pug and Holloway, who mm -hmm. have appeared in the show, are very different than their comic counterparts. But, um, you know, they that archetype would at least first, uh, uh, you know, make its appearance here. But to me, yeah. the biggest difference between the show and this comic is the show seems interested in hiring She-Hulk for her She-Hulk persona to come work at the law offices. But the comic is explicit. They don't want She-Hulk. They want Jen Walters. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's an interesting how that is reflected in the pages of this comic book. Do you feel anything about that like distinction, having read this road recently with the show? Yeah, I think, first of all, I think the show's change works for the show because, you know, it's a show about uh, this woman who does not want to be She-Hulk. She, you know, does not want to be, initially at least, you know, seen as a superhero, seen as an offshoot of the Hulk, you know, sort of meta-commentary there. Um, so having her be in a position where it's like, we'll hire you, you know, Miss Unhirable, but as long as you are this thing you are sort of uncomfortable with right now. And it sort of forces her into an interesting dramatic position. Um, whereas this seems to start off in the opposite way. She is, you know, she seems very comfortable being She-Hulk. You know, this is well into her career as an Avenger and as a superhero. So this sort of does the opposite. It, it says, all right, you've both proved yourself as an Avenger and kind of proved that you're not responsible enough. You're not up to the task. Um, you kind of just want to party. It, it seems to us... Like us being like this, you know, invisible hand who's deciding all the drama. It seems to us like you just want to be she, you just, you just want to be Jen. So why don't we put you in a position where you now have to be Jen and you rely, you know, on your skills as an attorney rather than, you know, your skills as a superhero. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really important to note the attorney element of this because the first six issues, and I would say probably the first... 12 issues of this run really focus on the like law aspect of this. And it mm -hmm. does everything it can to pull in, you know, just like the show would with it's like various, you know, characters from all across the Marvel universe. Um, of course, this is in a much more established Marvel universe where yeah. characters like porcupine can come into it and actually have yeah. had dozens of adventures um, in, in the past, instead of being like appearing like a whole new creation. Um, and 
I think that's really to this book's benefit. There's a couple of really great courtroom scenes um, fr from the beginning. Um, you know, there's two that stand out in my mind. There's one with a ghost and one with Spider-Man. Um, yeah. But I think for our purposes, the ghost is probably the best ex example of what this run can do that I think the show has never really even attempted to do, which is the scenario is there's a ghost um, that wants to basically sue the person who murdered him um, uh, and provide testimony uh, for his murder. But, uh, but he can't because he's dead. And so She-Hulk has to prove that uh, death is a temporary state in the Marvel Universe instead of like a permanent state. And the way that she does is really brilliant. It's she like asked how many people in the courtroom have died and come back. And just about everybody raises their hands because they've all were snapped away by Thanos and resurrected. And so ultimately the determination is that in the Marvel universe, death is officially a temporary state, um, which is both a funny commentary on comics themselves and a neat solution to this like uh, like a lawyer situation or this law situation um, that really makes She-Hulk seem really bright and like a really incredible lawyer in, in a way that I feel like this show never has. Um, uh, do you have a favorite uh, scene in court from these first six issues? No, it's it's got to be, I think, the two that you mentioned. First with the ghost, which seems like this very comedic Rashomon almost. Uh, and I mean, literally like the, you know, the events of the movie, it's not like a perspective thing. Um, and also the, the Spider-Man one, just because it is like laugh out loud, funny. Um, there's a chance that, you know, even if you haven't read this comic, you may have seen some panels from um, uh, the Spider-Man scene floating around where uh, Spider-Man is suing J. Jonah Jameson for, uh, I think it's libel. And uh, he, um, he says that he claims to be black and that's the reason that Jameson dislikes him. And of course, he says that he's joking, but it's a funny panel that has made its way around uh, from time to time. But I thought the funniest thing in it was um, in, you know, because of like a roundabout series of events without intending to Spider-Man ends up suing Peter Parker. Yes. Because or rather Spider-Man's lawyers end up suing Peter Parker on his behalf, uh, which I thought was like, that's that's. The that's one of those scenarios that can only exist in a universe like this. And it's the kind of thing where, like the ghost scenario, it's like, all right, what would the law be like in this universe? And you know, the show tries to touch on it a little bit. And, you know, to its credit, it is the most detailed that the MCU has felt in terms of having, you know, as many superpowered characters as it does, you know, as, you know, in terms of treating this world like it is populated by superheroes. Obviously not to the degree of, you know, the comics in the early 2000s, which have decades and decades and decades of history behind them. Uh, but the show sort of takes that concept and tries to do a little something with it. You know, with, like once a week, it'll bring in like a new, like legal case that is resolved like more or less with like, you know, standard US law rather than like some new superhero laws and such. So, like you said, it's not as wildly out there as it could be. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not yet dealing with a world that has had superheroes long enough that it needs to literally rewrite the rule book. Um, but I think another um, favorite 
case of mine in the comic is the case of Danger Man, who, much like She-Hulk in the show, Danger Man in the comics is someone who doesn't want to be a superhero. He doesn't want to be big and strong. He just wants to be a regular dude because he got into an industrial accident and got superpowers and became really huge. And his his name before this happened was Dan Germain. <laughs> so funny. And then She-Hulk has to prove that being in an accident like that and being turned into a superhero makes you a distinct legal entity from who you were before, which is so <laughs> dark to think about. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, you know, rereading this, I had a laugh because um, uh, I just had a, a child a few months ago and, and my name is Dan. And I've always joked that I was going to name my son Dan Jr. so I could call him Danger. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and rereading this, I was like, oh, I forgot that that joke was kind of also in the pages of this comic. Um, but uh, yeah, um, I did want to say one of the things that I found interesting, I've actually been rereading this whole run uh, mm-hmm. prior to, uh, to the show just to kind of, cause I remember loving it back 15 years ago and forgetting most of the details of it, but seeing that Spider-Man page circulating and remembering the goof with this ghost that I described earlier. And um, it's interesting that as the run continues, it veers so far away from uh, courtroom drama um, mm-hmm. that uh, there's a scene towards the end of the run where she shows up back at uh, GLK and H again. And like, she sees the supporting cast there that, um, and she's like, Oh, it feel, I feel so good here. This is where I should have been this whole time. And there's a sort of kind of like editorial commentary that like, the book had lost its way um, from its ascent, its like core conceit. And okay. I, I, I recently saw Dan Slott, um, the writer of this run on Twitter saying that he was like, felt pressured by the fans to remove her from the courtroom and take her into more standard She-Hulk uh, drama. And that he always felt like it belonged, you know, in the courtroom and realized that like the run really got back on track when he brought her back to the courtroom by mm-hmm. the end. And weirdly, I feel similarly about the show, but in the opposite direction. And I'm sure we'll get into this in, in, in the review, which is to me, the stuff dealing with the law is the stuff I'm least interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and the stuff that's about like her dating and dealing with celebrity is the stuff that I, I feel like the writers are more interested in. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I, I rereading both of these things and watching the show simultaneously, I was kind of struck by that weird similarity of the kind of series that kind of wavers in its identity wildly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, do you have any final thoughts about this short run of comics? Yeah, I think it's interesting how it also tries to go back on like the meta element of the John Byrne run. Um, You know, it still has like, you know, references and all that, but where uh, John Byrne, She-Hulk, you know, speaks directly to the reader and the story is, you know, she, she's self-aware in that, like she's, she knows she's in a comic, she knows she's in a story. uh, She knows like the trope, she knows like, you know, how the pages of a comic work and to some degree, Jen Walters in the show is aware of that as well. Um, there is an element of that that is retained by this 2004 run in that all of She-Hulk's comics, as we know them, exist in the Marvel Universe. 
and are uh, supposedly accurate portrayals of everything that has happened. So they become like these in-world historical documents approved by the Comics Code Authority, which is like a federal agency that is, I, I don't know, like, they're like apparently like sort of historians in, in this universe. <laughs> Um, so she doesn't break the fourth wall in the sense of like talking directly to the audience. That doesn't happen very much. But there again is this element of like what we are reading is also a part of you know the the universe in which it exists, which I thought was fun. There's also like some as the run gets on, there's meta commentary where they'll be reading one of the previous comics and like commenting on the elements that they thought didn't work in the comic. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And it's like literally criticizing the book you just read a couple months ago, um, which is funny. Um, and, and speaking of the not breaking the fourth wall, uh, I, there's a great moment in the first issue where someone asks She-Hulk, hey, can you still do that thing where you can break the fourth wall? And she turns and looks like at the camera, so to speak, and says, no. <laughs> and and it's, I've always thought that was hilarious because she is breaking the fourth wall in denying it. Uh, so uh, I, I thought that was really funny. And um, I guess there's one last thing that I'll, I'll add to this too, which is um, the run goes on to kind of really uh, take on some difficult subjects involving gender and sexual violence that the mm -hmm. show has kind of dipped its toes into or at least invoked. Here and there, um, there, there's like a uh, there's a really famous issue of the John Byrne run that like is all about the male gaze of mm -hmm. She-Hulk jumping rope for twelve pages. Have you have you read this issue? Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, it's it was both criticized and like you know uh, held up as this kind of like interesting commentary on the male gaze at the time. And uh, this kind of furthers that. There's this um, uh, whole arc where um these women of like who have been suffered sexual violence um are suing um star fox who is a character that just got introduced at harry styles in the mcu and mm -hmm. um she hulk is kind of hired to defend him in a really awkward and uncomfortable way um and you know i don't think it's perfect but it, it is an interesting like instance i can't really think of many marvel comics that even would want to wade into this territory around the time yeah. that it came out. And so um, at least as a time capsule, um, it's interesting, especially comparing it with this show, which seems to have a much more kind of like modern take on how to address these topics. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't love those issues, but I appreciate what they were trying to do at the very least. Um I don't know if you've read those in in recent memory. Not in a long time. It's been maybe a decade, maybe more. Yeah. Well, I I, I think you know they're kind of icky, but they're interesting. Um, mm -hmm. I, I I don't know how else to put it other other than that. Um, so hey, icky but interesting sounds good to me. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, anyway, that is a single green female. The start of the Dan Slot run of She-Hulk comics from 2004, the first six issues. I mean, an interesting run from beginning to end um, that, you know, a lot of what we see on the show is pulled from. So uh, I'm always an advocate for reading more comics. And if this is something that sounds vaguely interesting to you, I would encourage you to go pick it up. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of MCU fans will enjoy this one. Yeah. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. All right, folks, you are listening to or watching our review of She-Hulk, Attorney at Law, Season 1, Episode 7, The Retreat. I'm Dan Gavazdan, filling in for David Chen, and he's Sidant Adlaka. Hello, Sidant Adlaka. Hello again. Let's Hello, get Dan into Gavazdan. our review proper of She-Hulk, Episode 7, The Retreat. Uh, why don't you start us off here, Sidant? What would you think of this episode? You have this history with the show talking about episodes one through six, where does this one sit for you? Like most of the show, I think it, you know, it's fine. It's fun in parts, mostly inoffensive. I think, you know, I, I feel like I'm just repeating myself every week when it comes to this specific segment. Cause it's like, there's, there's not much of a variation in quality from episode to episode, just because there's not much variation in what the episodes try and do whether it's structurally or story-wise or even you know visually or in terms of its sense of humor um you know this one has its fun moments it has uh the moments that really stick out to me as a filmmaker when it skillfully avoids and edits around the actual transformations because they don't want to show how poorly those were done <laughs> um <laughs> but you know um Overall, I think it's a fun one. I think it comes the closest to uh, doing what we said the the Dan Slott comic does, which is what we talked about in the first half of this episode. And that is, you know, fleshing out this world and showing how populated it really is with, you know, superheroes and like superpowered characters. Yeah, my favorite episode of, of the show so far was episode four, uh, you know, um, mostly be maybe because of Madison. But I, I like mm -hmm. the kind of like setup of the kind of lawyerly conceit there. I think it asked an interesting question of the MCU. Like, can you trademark the concept of magic as mm -hmm. it exists as a real thing? Like, that's an interesting uh, parallel to our real world where magic is not real. Um, and I like seeing that update, but I, like I said earlier, I think the stuff, the episodes that, um, outside of that particular episode, the stuff that resonates the most to me is when this show has fun with kind of like the idea of like dating as a woman in your early thirties, um, and, uh, kind of like what it means to wrestle with celebrity and mm -hmm. having kind of like a public persona and a private persona um mostly because i like i don't as much as this show wants to claim that it's a lawyer show i think it's very disinterested in actually showing us like any kind of like casework 
um, <laughs> like, uh, I mean, the, I guess the past two episodes, we haven't really had She-Hulk involved in any legalese, right? They last episode, they shoehorned in the Mr. Immortal stuff. Um, and I don't know that I miss it all that much. Yeah. Um, when she has gotten involved in a case, I feel like she's gotten out on a technicality rather than any kind of like smart intuition on her behalf, whether it be Wong showing up or her just happening to know some guy well in a personal life that she can testify in their own case. Um, and I don't really feel like I know much about GLKNH, like as an entity, is it a successful like uh, firm? What's her place in it? Is there jostling for positions? Um, like, is she being held to any kind of standard? Um, I don't know that the show is interested in that stuff. So I kind of like these diversions, uh, frankly. Um, and it allows kind of like Tatiana Maslani to do some great things and, and deliver monologues. And I think the ones she's delivered about being a woman in various scenarios have been, um, both, you know, appropriate to the story and light enough to fit in with a comic book thing. And so uh, this one was one of the better ones to me just because I felt like I understood the stakes and mm -hmm. really could spend time with characters and maybe have a little laugh here and there. Um, do you want to push back on any of my assertions of this or? No, not at all. I, I'm. It didn't actually strike me until you mentioned it that there was actually no... B plot this week. There was no real lawyer stuff. The only like lawyer type of thing that happens is is what gets her to the retreat. The thing that yeah. you know, oh, then you know he may have violated his parole, so let's get her there. Oh, he hasn't. Okay, uh, so it, it, it again, it, it's it's just kind of sort of there in the background as like you know, this is the one episode where her having, excuse me, her being a lawyer has nothing to do with anything pretty much um and yeah i didn't miss it so you're right about that yeah um one of the things i wanted to mention is this uh, episode was written by zeb wells who is a a, a comic writer he's currently writing amazing spider-man which i'm covering on my show amazing spider talk um but uh the interesting thing about zeb well, there's many interesting things about zeb but one of the interesting things is that he's uh married to heidi gardner from snl and um, I actually think that there's like an, a, an interesting kind of thread in this work about like a woman with a kind of like public persona that's seen as larger than life and maybe the perfect one versus the private persona that um, you kind of wish you could be. And I wonder if like being in a relationship with like a famous per you know, person uh, TV celebrity found its way into the writing um, because I found like the latter half of this episode's discussion of that, like genuinely moving despite I think not knowing very much about Jen Walters and her desires as a human being, you know, <laughs> we never saw her really much pre Hulk. Um, and this show kind of like begs us to desire for her to get back to that without mm -hmm. having really seen it. But there was some authenticity lended by the writing and Tatiana Maslany's performance that I think enriched this episode more than the standard, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, and you know, usually Marvel tends to have an over reliance on exposition and scenes that you know are delivered through dialogue. But I thought there was this one great scene where you know she's sitting in that little uh, you know support group at the retreat, talking about how oh you know how in high school there's that one friend who's more athletic, more attractive. You know, people want her more. What if you could become that person? I'm like, this is a really interesting sort of schism in identity that I kind of wish the show touched on more. Um, but I think, you know, seven out of nine episodes in, I think that's probably like the most we're really going to get. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but you're right. It was a well-delivered monologue. It was, um, you know, the the way the actual physical design of She-Hulk is rendered, unfortunately, takes away from the, the real performance a little bit. But, you know, how many times can I say that? It's It's like a continued problem. But again, Tatiana Maslany is proving week after week that when the camera is on her as like a real living, breathing human being, she does some great work. Um, there are like really small moments that I think, you know, maybe some other performers might have treated as insignificant, like when she's sitting around watching TV and waiting for a text. Um, you know, it isn't just like, all right, let me check my phone. The the phantom vibrations of the phone are the most important thing in the world to her. And really, who among us? You know, like, who has not experienced that? <laughs> like, why aren't they texting me back? You know, I, I like that as like the setup for an episode. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I agree with that. And that's actually a great bridge into the episode itself, which is to say that uh, uh, this episode starts with a sequence like that seems almost straight out of a comic book. It's, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a montage, right? It's a, a series of very specifically chosen images to convey, you know, a, an impression of a larger meaning, which is her kind of, um, well, both dating and then kind of lovesick waiting for a response from our good man, Josh, who we met uh, last episode, um, what did you think of this opening sequence? Uh, it definitely stood out to me. Yeah, I thought it was effective simply because, um, you know, I think Josh is charming. Like from the moment he showed up last week, I thought, all right, this, this guy is, he seems goofy, down to earth, you know, flirtatious, respectful, you know, seems like, to, to put it very reductively, he seems like a very fit and well-built nerd. <laughs> Like, I know that's reductive, but I think that's the vibe they're going for. Like, all right, he's not like some, you know, uh, dumb meathead. He has his own, like, anxieties, but, you know, there's something really attractive about him as well. So, of course, it's going to be, you know, disappointing when he behaves the way he does and doesn't, you know, call or text her back. Um, I do wish on some level that that is all that we were dealing with with him, just to give her something, you know, more realistic dating wise you know to be up against but you know at, at the end of it it's just a reveal that happens way at the end that you know he was after <laughs> blood um so as far as she knows you know she was ghosted by a guy who you know she thought was much nicer than he turned out to be um where it goes from here is anybody's guess but um i think the reason that you know quote-unquote betrayal stings as much as it does is because there's a, a sort of effervescent quality to that opening montage. You know, um, the show is not concerned with action or CGI in those moments. It's just about creating a feeling. It's not even about conveying a scene or a, you know, a plot. It's just about like, all right, this is the mood that we're in. This is the mood that Jen is in. 
And then as soon as you're out of that mood, it's like, oh, that's a bit of a downer. Yeah. Yeah, I think in isolation, this montage is very effective. You know, um, there's a lot of parts of it that, like, I think are undermined by the series history. Like, Josh ghosting her, he's not even the first guy in this show to do as much, right? We just, a few episodes ago, got a guy that slept with her, and then in the morning ghosted her for the opposite reason, I guess, uh, than Josh. Um, and I think that takes a little bit of the sting out of it, which is to say, yeah. like, I don't really know where Jen's headspace is at at the start of this episode. Um, and this show is not Seinfeld, right? It's not like, <laughs> like Seinfeld might as well, for, for most of Seinfeld, it's not interested in ongoing storylines. And so, like, each episode can be viewed in isolation, but the fact that the show is interested in stringing along these ongoing plots makes you want to read the emotional highs and lows of these characters. And I don't think the show gives us enough to really feel that, or it's repeating beats fairly regularly that these mm -hmm. things don't really land. A good example of this is in one of the scenes in the montage where Jen wins female lawyer of the year, which is meant to be like, a joke that she's not caring about that. You know, she gets this big, you know, a claim, you know, that would apparently mean a lot to her, but she's too busy waiting for Josh to text her back. Like the phantom text, as you put it. Um, mm -hmm. But there's no context for what that means. Like we've not really seen her struggle or what her competition was like, or that she really wants something like that. Um, much less many courtroom scenes with her. So that win doesn't mean anything that it's thrown away mm. other than in title only. And and that's where I feel like this show is trying to kind of like have its cake and eat it too. Um, and, and maybe it's a, a product of like a very crowded writer's room. Um, but again, it, I thought it worked in this episode. But in the context of the show itself, I think it ends up undermining uh, like how emotionally potent these scenes can be. Yeah, and it, uh, on that note, it's kind of crazy that, you know, it, again, stuff happens episodically, each episode is its own fun little adventure, but there is like an overarching plot as well. And again, we're seven episodes in, and I still couldn't really tell you what that overarching plot is, like what's going on with this, whoever this Hulk King is, what, what do these people want, um, these are questions that would be intriguing like three or four episodes in. Now it's like, okay, I, I guess something else is happening. You know, there's like less than 60 minutes of this show left. I, I'm assuming we'll see something more to do with this. But, you know, even if we don't, it's like so far it hasn't really mattered. So well, it feels like it's just going to be like another throwaway, like some yeah. of the other things that we get. So why invest so much in the suspense of this? Yeah. And so, which is why it's like also, um, you know, why have Josh be a part of that at all if it, if it's going to be a throwaway? Well, we don't know for sure that it will be, but given right. the given the show's track record, you're right. It it feels like it may as well just be a throwaway. And yet, sometimes these characters seem to come back. You know, I was not expecting Blonsky to show up mm -hmm. again in the show, and yet here he is. Jen gets a call from his parole officer. Um, that he may be turning into abomination and and breaking free of his, uh, you know, court mandated, uh, re like his retreat, if you will, 
which seems like, I mean, look, if you're going to be stuck somewhere, like he seems to have uh, made, made it work to his favor. But um, of mm-hmm. course, it's just a tech error and her car, you know, gets, you know, like kind of into this cell free surface. Um, I did like the note that she's kind of like can't stop checking her phone while she's driving. Um, like that, that actually hit for a laugh for me um, during this whole sequence. Uh, that and the mbop uh, as, as a to break the the emotional tone. Um, yeah. So we show up at the retreat. Blonsky's fine, and then we get the introduction of our first of like true F list. Marvel characters, <laughs> you know, barging their way in. And look, I am a sucker for F-list Marvel characters. Uh, sign me up for uh, them. One of my favorite comic runs of recent years is Superior Foes of Spider-Man, which was like mm-hmm. an F-list book from beginning to end. We get Manbull and El Aquila here, who I got to admit, even I don't even really know much about their comic history. Are these characters that you're familiar with? Uh, not Manbull. Uh, I can't even really say I'm too familiar with Alakula, uh, other than like I know he's a mutant. So that's a fun little tidbit there. Um, it, it's fun that She-Hulk can just introduce casually a character that in the comics is a mutant and does what they do as a mutant, um, like that that bioelectricity thing. Like that's his thing in the comic, and it's yeah. it's treated so casually here, and I kind of love that. There's no gravity to it. Um, granted, they don't like say he's a mutant or anything, but um, uh, I kind of wish they may have like I kind of wish they'd have played like the you know the, the X Men animated theme or something. <laughs> it seems <laughs> move, like move the kind side of... Wolverine. We got El <laughs> Yeah. Um, I loved the kind of like repeated beat that they have here that he's not actually a matador. Um, mm. uh, and and like that like Manbull seems to have a real issue with this, but at the same time it, they're like have this almost bro love for each other because of this theming issue uh, <laughs> that, that always made me laugh uh like to yeah. me that was kind of one of the prime laughs of of uh of this episode um yeah the the others are sort of interchangeable but those two they have a really fun dynamic and i hope we get to see more of them and um it's it's so funny to see for the first time what you know blonsky's method actually is over here that uh, all right, you know, eventually you sit and talk about it, but you also like work out your aggression because you know you're you're superheroes and you have to like put that energy somewhere. So of course they put that energy into her Prius Prime, um, <laughs> which they're they're sure to name check a bunch of times. So I, I I'm I'm wondering how much uh, you know like we 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 got an ad here for a Prius uh, in, in this episode, but. Um, so of course that leaves Jen stranded at the retreat where, you know, we learn that there is a sauna lodge and she eventually mysteriously finds her way to a shed, which uh, I, I got a good laugh out of um, on the wall. It says Abo Maste. Um, yeah. and, and, and I can't even begin to unpack what they think that means in, in this universe. <laughs> um, but of course it is a, sub, all, like, a like a men's support group um, yeah. that she's walking into with um, uh, Porcupine, Saracen, who is a guy that thinks he's a vampire. And I got to say, I like squealed with glee because Porcupine is like a favorite villain of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a great appearance in a Spider-Woman run a few years ago. And he just kind of like 
prickled his way into my heart. So ah. uh, I, I was happy to see him here. Um, uh, this is kind of the key scene of the episode and probably, you know, the rest of the episode is just a setup to get to this scene and get to Jen's speech in this scene. what do you think of the mm-hmm. construction of this men's therapy group? I think, you know, it's one of those very simple dramatic setups that's like, you know, give Jen what she needs, even if it's not what she wants, because she needs to put her phone down, take a breath and like introspect about why she's doing what she's doing, you know, why she's focused on this guy to the point of, you know, obsession. Well, not obsession. That's that's putting it a little harshly. But, you know, she's you know obsessed with like checking her phone to see if he's texted back and, you know, why she can't just let this go. And um, I think they find a really, you know, entertaining way to do that, you know, through these uh, really goofy, you know, characters. This is, it's it's an emotional breakthrough for her that comes in like the most unserious way. And that that to me is just, it encapsulates what the show is. You know, if this was like a a really intense, let's sit down and, you know, dig into your past trauma thing, I would probably be bored by it. Uh, just because, you know, Marvel has tried to do things like that in the past where, you know, it'll be like action, action, action. And then let's talk for a second about what this action supposedly means and then more action, action. Uh, but here it's just, you know, hey, it's fun. You know, ev- everyone's got their own weird baggage, whether, you know, it's it's a cultural identity crisis or, you know, you are a bull-faced lab experiment <laughs> um, or you can't, like or you can't you do. get... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you can't get you can't seem to leave your porcupine suit because you see it as like an emotional armor. Which which I thought, you know, these these fun little, you know, surface level things that they don't really need to go into detail with because they all sort of inform um Jen's journey in a way that maybe I would have liked to see more because, you know, with Manbull it's all about like I look a certain way. With uh El Aguila, it's like, well, this is how you know, people perceive me, but my identity is something else. And with the porcupine, it's like, all right, you know, I'm shielding my, you know, emotions from other people. And these are all things that, you know, She-Hulk has sort of been through. So I would have liked to have seen those reflections of her playing a little more. Uh, Saracen, I don't know. I think he's just there for the joke of like, oh, Josh is after your blood. <laughs> well, you can, if you really want to go deep, Saracen is all about taking in the blood of others, just as She-Hulk did in the first episode. Oh, okay, okay, well done. I'm well I'm done. just pulling that directly out of my ass, so uh, yeah, I don't mean, it give works. it too much credit. But okay, yeah. So there is something um, there, whether or not it's like you know super deep, I guess. Fair, fair enough. Yeah. I, I thought that joke was funny because it is so obvious that you know he's a there. He was there for her blood. Uh, yeah, you know, especially in hindsight. Uh, um, uh, I, you know, Wrecker does kind of come way in, so we do get a little oh, bit of an action right. sequence at, yeah. at some point. I actually thought, like, uh, there's inter- something interesting about, like, her choosing to open up and share, even with him there, and that she can subside her rage and and understand that he was, you know, hired for this job, and, you know, she can, like, contextualize that. Um but it, it it also goes to that whole thing with like uh, the Hulk King um, or whatever that plot line is, um, which is to say like they kind of were very quick to just kind of throw away the Wreckers involvement in that, which mm-hmm. is only to say I don't expect that plot line to really, um, you know, have that much value if they're willing to like the one guy they've set up 
being a part of it, they're ready to just abandon it too. Um, yeah. Although I have my theories that they might use this to introduce the leader, um, you know, in, in, into the uh, MCU on the back yeah. of this show, just like they did with Kang, um, you know, but um, it's a whole other topic for another day and another episode of, of this yeah. show. The, um, the leader is like a, a, a an 8chan mod. Yes, that, that, that's it. That's it. Yeah, he's um he's really Q. Is 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 uh, oh god is, 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 oh, is god. what we're what we're getting at here. Um, oh god, how king yeah. is Q confirmed? Um, yes. <laughs> no, the the record thing I thought was I thought was funny. Uh, both because she like um you know sort of triggers this previously on, which I thought was fun because uh, you know I, no one's gonna remember that guy. Um. And I thought, like for a second, with the with the footage they used, I thought, wait, was this guy not in the original scene and they just like sort of inserted him in there or used some like additional take or something? And no, like that, like that guy is in there hopping around in the background and we just didn't notice him the first time I went back and watched it. <laughs> like the only difference is like, I think the shot they use of him like, you know, dancing or whatever in the background lasts maybe like half a second longer. Um, so you can, so your eyes can like focus on him, but, um, no, you know, good callback, I guess, to to something that none of us really absorbed. Yeah. uh, So we talked lightly about like Jen's, you know, monologue slash speech here. Um, and the idea that like, she feels turning into she Hulk is like a form of, of cheating. Um, you know, this kind of like well-crafted persona. I'm curious to Don, um, if, um, you know, we're both online people and uh, I think mm-hmm. your work is kind of more, you know, uh, you know, more widely published than, than myself. Do you have a, any connection to this kind of uh, separation from like uh, what your writing presents and who you are um, on the Internet? Uh, I would say none that I consciously made while watching She-Hulk, but now that you yeah. ask me. Um, just to some degree, because, you know, I guess being online is all about how you present yourself and, you know, you do have a little more control. You, you have essentially a way of editing yourself and the way you come across, you, you have, um, control over it. Some people take advantage of that control. Like my, you know, my Twitter is just like, all right, let me, you know, a few jokes here and there. Let me just tweet about work. Like it's uh, four or five years ago, it was this sort of unfiltered, you know, unpleasant version of myself. I was like, oh, I've got a discourse 24 uh, seven. But now it's like, no, let me just like, let, let me put the filter on really hard. So I get that to an extent, like how there are two views um, as there always would be in any scenario. It's not just limited to, you know, like online, um, you know, your, your work self and your home self and who you are around your friends. So just um, in that very basic sense, you know, uh, She-Hulk, as in the character, does ask the question like, oh, you know, which, you know, at what point am I an imposter? Who is the authentic me? Um, and it's, again, one of those things that I wish the show dedicated more time towards because it's clearly asking the right questions. It's probably not going to use its drama or even its comedy to actually follow those instincts. You yeah. know, none of none of her... You know, her big dilemmas are really going to emanate from, you know, that that schism in identity, you know, beyond what they have already, which is like, oh, this guy likes She-Hulk, this guy likes Jen, you know, but I'm kind of both of them. So, 
what what's my dating life like so unless the the last two episodes like pivot very hard towards uh you know just focusing in on that i i think it's going to be more window dressing than anything but like i keep saying in a more serious show that would be you know very unpleasant to watch um but again it's this this one's sort of farcical so it's like yeah okay this is i guess this is what she hulk is about now you know let's watch a 20 minute sitcom that's vaguely sort of about it yeah, I, I completely agree with you on on all of that. And, um, I, you know, kind of bringing this full circle with the slot run, I think it's interesting that, like, the personas were flipped in who's really doing the law uh, practice stuff. Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, in the comic, She-Hulk is like the partier mm-hmm. and Jen Walters is the more serious persona. And Jen Walters is put in the position of... Um, you know, being the face of GLK and H and here it's the flip, right? Like Jen Walter seems the more kind of free spirit and she Hulk kind of has to be this lawyer in, in the position of representing this uh, law firm. Uh, And so I can understand the desire to flip that, especially if you were going after this, this scene in this episode, which is to say she Hulk is how she presents herself to the world and uh, Jen Walters is kind of who she wishes she could be. Um, and in regards to fleshing that out, like this is kind of why I feel like if they ignored the lawyer stuff and really focused it on her having this schism of personality and celebrity versus, you know, her private life, which they also try to do. Like there's a really weird scene, I think, in like episode two where she goes to this bar and everybody in the bar is like, yeah, she Hulk is here. Mm -hmm. Like how cool. And then it cuts and no one seems to care about her being there at all. Um, Like they're just kind of ignoring her. Like, and she's sitting at a table talking to her friend without like people swarming her. And it's like, okay, I don't really know. Like they're kind of trying to do it both ways, but if the show was truly like just about that, I think they like, this episode could have been a really strong turning point in a kind of more character oriented celebrity interested series that I think is trying to do just like five or six too many things at, at once. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I've often complained about the show that it feels like uh, comics used to be 28 pages in length on average, and now they're 21 pages in length on average and those seven missing pages is often like it's crucial between a good book and a bad book. You can do a lot in like a quarter of the book being removed. Um, And a lot of these episodes feel like that, like give me like 10 more minutes to really flesh this out and make it really sing. Um, uh, But that would squeeze past half an hour. But um, that's why I think this was one of the stronger episodes for me because it just didn't have the other stuff. It just kind of focused on this one idea. Um, And, you know, uh, I I thought it was stronger for it. And so we get the end of the episode with um, a a shout out to what we'd be talking about today on the side of the truck. It says slot towing uh, in reference to Dan slot. And um, uh, I I thought, Oh, I saw that. I was like, Oh, Sedona and Adlaka and I are going to be talking about this. Uh, uh, so cool. We got a little Easter egg. Um, do you have any final thoughts on this episode before we kind of wrap things up? I agree with what you said, uh, in that it, it, you know, because it gives 
the gen slash she hulk side of things more focus away from all the lawyer activities and there's no b plot it feels a tad more substantial than some of the previous weeks and also in the process even without three days earlier thing even without that segment it feels like a complete episode it feels like an episode with an actual ending and gosh that is such a low bar because the last <laughs> few weeks the episodes have just felt like they've kind of just like ended out of nowhere at like just a completely random point yeah um whereas this there's like an actual you know there's like a there's like a flow to it there's a story to it you know whether or not it works it's about like okay you know she's riding this high and then she's down low and then she you know finds a way to like build herself up again and it's just like all right she's you know, driving back to civilization with sort of a new perspective. That's nice. And, you know, the three days earlier thing is this nice little tease. So again, it it feels like a complete episode. Congratulations to She-Hulk. You know? um, yeah, it's so, it's so weird because these Marvel shows seem to oscillate between like, um, like they're just never really sure what the product should be. Um, mm-hmm. Like Moon Knight should have been a movie. Like it just should have been mm-hmm. a movie, um, you know. Maybe Falcon and Winter Soldier, a movie. Like they just they don't have enough there to sustain a run. And this feels like uh, they're they have too much uh, stuff that they need to fit in, and the episodes need to be longer. And I just like I guess sort of like um, WandaVision and Miss Marvel. They like they haven't really figured out what these shows are yet and and Mm -hmm. you'd think they have a lot to trade from you know they brought in zeb wells to write this episode and like i said he's a comic book writer you know you've got marvel has this whole history of short uh comic book writing you know like for sequential stuff tv should feel like the natural environment for marvel to have media in and yet like the movies still feel like where they should be or, or what they figured out. Um, and I, maybe that's just part of the growing process. Um, uh, but uh, I, I would, I would actually tell them like bring in more comic writers. Um, yeah. And they uh, might be able to figure this out. No, like a big problem with like how Marvel studios does things is that it basically feels like they are shooting a first draft, but also that first draft hasn't been complete yet. And then they fix things, you know, in reshoots and in post. And they, you know, notoriously don't know what they want going in. So regardless of the level of skill and artistry of, you know, the people involved on the writing and directing and production design side, you have this, you know, this executive level that's like, you know, do this, now do this. Now we get this person to fix it. Now we get that person to fix it. And, you know, look how simply just just earlier this week, they, they turned what was supposed to be a TV series, Armor Wars, into a movie. It's like, all right, so the plan was to make something that I guess could have been either one. And hey, you know, I'm not going to complain about um, a Marvel series being turned into a movie because it, like you said, it feels like a lot of these should have been movies. But yeah. it makes you wonder, like, because this, this show was announced ages ago. So it's like, what what were they, like, what was the plan there? I'd, I'd love to, you know, get some behind the scenes dirt on that. Like, what were they doing? What made them decide this? What was the material they were working with that could have made them so easily go from, you know, a presumably a six-part series to a feature film? And that makes me then wonder, like, how are they doing it with She-Hulk? Because She-Hulk, on the other hand, is very episodic, but also, like you said, it it, at, it feels both 
insubstantial and overstuffed in that there are all of these ideas. There's a lot going on. There's a lot in the margins, but not all of it makes it into the place that it should. So it's, it's just, it's incredibly messy in the process, but, um, you know, at the very end of this episode, it's like, all right, it gives us like a neat emotional resolution and then gives us this little tease of like, oh, Josh bad, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't have much more to say that I haven't already said about this. Well, great. Well, let's let's uh, lay it to rest there and talk about uh, what we're going to be doing next week. Um, yeah. And sit on. I'm really excited to talk to you. Uh, next week about the Charles Soule run of She-Hulk, which is the run that for you know like uh, that came after uh, Dan Slott's run many years later. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it sees She-Hulk opening her own law firm um, in her very own distinct way. Um, and the most interesting thing about it, if I could entice people to read along with us, is that at the time Charles Soule was a practicing lawyer. Um, who was writing comics at night. And so if you really like the lawyer element of She-Hulk, this one really like pulls from reality um, in a way that I think makes this run really uh, fun to read. It's short. It's 12 issues. We're going to be talking about the first six. And um, I'm just excited to introduce you to it because I think it's really fun Um and also Charles Soule would then later go on to write Daredevil for much longer and do the same thing, bring his experience from the law into um, the pages of Daredevil. So, hey, maybe we'll get a Daredevil cameo next week and it will really all <laughs> sing and uh, we, we can pretend we did it intentionally. How does that sound? It sounds great to me. Awesome. Well, that'll do it for us today on Decoding TV, covering She-Hulk, Attorney at Law, Season 1 episode seven. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find more episodes of this podcast, go to podcast.decodingtv.com where we're also covering Andor and the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power until David decides to take on a half dozen other shows. (laughs) You can email us at decodingtv at gmail.com. And if you want to support the podcast, go to decodingtv.com and become a paid member. We'd really appreciate it. It's how Sedant and I get to keep being a part of this platform. Next week, I'll be back filling in for David again. But until then, I'm Dan Gavazdan, and that's Sedant Adlaga for Decoding TV, and we'll see you later. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.